Well, hello again. Let's pray as we uh, open Jeremiah. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this season. Thank you for the coming into the world of our Savior and Lord. Thank you for breaking through the darkness with your light, for rescuing us from ourselves and from the devil and from death itself. Lord, we are just so thankful, not only at this time of the year, but always for you and for your greatness and goodness and faithfulness and love. And as we open your word now, Lord, uh, we pray your spirit's attendance here uh, to nudge us where we need to be nudged and bring us to a, a new level, perhaps, of worship to you. We thank you again for this morning, for the baptisms, for all that you're doing here at Snowden. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Jeremiah for the Advent season. In the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, there is a heavy emphasis in those chapters on God's judgment on Israel's rebellion. A day of destruction at the hands of powerful Babylon is promised repeatedly throughout those chapters, and the destruction was coming because of the rampant, persistent sin of the people. But when we come to Jeremiah 30, the tone of the book changes in quite a notable way. Jeremiah 30 through 33 is usually called the book of consolation because in those chapters, God's purpose is to bring comfort and to bring hope to the devastated um, exilic community. There would be a future after the horror and suffering of war and exile. There would be a future beyond that judgment, and God desired that the people would understand that and take heart. In the words of Chris Wright, the promise of Jeremiah 30 through Jeremiah 33 is that God would bring life out of death and a glorious future out of a dismal past. Well, our plan this morning is to focus only on the 30th chapter of Jeremiah. We want to read through that chapter together, and I I will try to bring some brief uh, comments in along the way as we go through. So beginning at verse 1, Jeremiah 30, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. So in the future, after a time of exile at the hands of Babylon, God would intervene personally to turn things around for Israel and for Judah. They would see that things would miraculously take a turn for the better. God continues, still in verse 3, And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So God would ensure that his people Israel would be brought back to the promised land after their years of exile in Babylon. Now, with verses 4 through 7, we have a very striking picture of the effect, the effect of Babylon's invasion of Judah. 
what kind of effect it would have on the people of Judah. The invasion was surely coming. And here how, here's how the invasion would affect the people. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and of no peace. This invasion by the superpower of the region would be absolutely fear-inducing and horrifying. Verse 6. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Answer, no. Childbearing is normally reserved for women. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? What's the picture here? The picture is of the strong men of Judah, probably army officers, in extreme anguish like women experiencing labor pains, clutching their stomachs in real distress. Why? Because now they see the massive power of Babylon's military knocking down the gates of Jerusalem, and these men realize in panic that they are powerless against this force. It's all over. Babylon has arrived in Jerusalem. Verse 7. Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. And here, Jacob is acting as a stand-in for Israel. But then note, won't you, the end of verse 7. Notice, suddenly, out of nowhere, God declares the promise of salvation for Israel. Yet, they, yet he shall be saved out of it. So there's this surprising gospel announcement that suddenly comes into the midst of these pictures of distress and of anxiety. Well, if verses 5 through 7 focused on the moment of Jerusalem's cataclysm, now verses 8 and 9 take us to the time later on in history when God would intervene to free the exiled Israeli people from the land of Babylon. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares Yahweh of armies, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. So a day would surely come when God would liberate his exiled people out of the land of Babylon. And then pay careful attention to verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now the first David had waged war against Philistia to liberate Israel from the Philistines. The new king like David 
whom God would raise up would also be a liberator, according to what we read in verse 8. But the kind of liberation that the new David would perform would far surpass anything that the first David ever did. More on that a little later. Let's go to verse 10. God continues his consoling words to his sin-sick, soon-to-be-exiled people. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you. In verse 7, God already promised that he would act to save his wayward people. This would be a salvation that would follow after the judgment of exile. And now he promises salvation a second time. I will save you, he says, from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, blessed be God, and none shall make him afraid. And then in verse 11, for a third time, God promises salvation. Notice, for I am with you to what? To save you, declares the Lord. So salvation is repeated three times in these verses, but along with that thrice-repeated promise to save, notice also the words that open this verse. Blessed words of God. I am with you. Now, God is speaking to the people who scorned him, who sinned against him, who rebelled against his word. And he says, I am with you. More surprising gospel here, friends. The same promise of presence that God had given to Jacob and to Moses and to Joshua is now given to the guilty exiles. And this I am with you, I think, would be particularly meaningful and particularly significant at this juncture in their history because in Jeremiah 21.5 and in Jeremiah 21.13, God had declared to these same people that he was against them because of their sin. God is both. He is with his people in his great and his astonishing mercy, but he is against his people in judgment for their sin. And this is precisely the tone of the rest of the verse Verse 11, God says, notice, For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. So the first half of the verse is all mercy. But notice what happens next. God says, I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So in this 11th verse, friends, we have both God's mercy for his people and God's judgment on those same people because of their sin. In verses 12 through 15, we go back to a very heart-rending description of Israel's situation in the moment of their exile. Listen to the grief in these verses. 
For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. We could sum up these two verses by saying that in their exile to Babylon, Israel was experiencing life-threatening injuries. Chris Wright describes it very well when he says this, the picture in verses 12 and 13 is clearly a portrait of a nation in exile, physically emaciated by the months of siege, decimated to a fragment by the slaughter that happened when the city fell, emotionally traumatized, and spiritually denying the possibility of recovery. Nothing was left, he says, but dry bones and the grave. And the seriousness of their situation really comes in view when we look at the Hebrew at the end of verse 13. The word that's translated into English as healing. No healing for you. This is a word that describes new skin growing over a wound. The wound that Israel experienced in the exile was so pronounced, friends, that new skin wasn't growing over that wound. This was a tremendous moment of crisis for the nation of Israel. Verse 14. All your lovers. That is, all those nations like Egypt, whom you had formed alliances with in past days to try to stave off the threat of Babylon, all those lovers of yours, Judah, have forgotten you. They care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy. This is God speaking. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. Notice at the end of the verse, the reason why the exile and Babylon's attack was happening was due to the fact that God's people had great guilt and flagrant sins. They had brought this on themselves. Very important. Verse 15, why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Again, folks, it's the people's rebellion against their God that had brought all of this on. Now, When you and I, on the earthly plane, when we utilize our human logic, we often use the word therefore in our formulation. So I need a two-liter jug of skim milk. Therefore, I will drive to Super C. We use the word therefore in our logical formulations. The word therefore often becomes in between a premise, so I need milk is the premise in that example, comes between a premise and an action, 
Therefore, action, I will drive to the store. What I want us to pay special attention to in verse 16 is God's therefore. The premise of things has just been stated in verses 14 and 15. The premise of things is this. The people's sin is flagrant and their guilt is great. Now, using the powers of human logic, we would surely expect that a statement would follow that would be based on the premise of great sin and guilt. A a, a statement like, therefore, I will punish you greatly. But God's therefore, in God's logic, in God's economy, is so radically different from ours. Why? Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. Behold your God in verse 16. God says, therefore, in other words, because your sin is flagrant and your guilt is so great, therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. In other words, friends, get this. God would ensure that Babylon, for her devouring of Israel, that Babylon herself would be devoured. Babylon, because she was such a fierce enemy of Israel, would herself end up in captivity. In the words of one commentator, those who would bring suffering to Israel would be caused to suffer. The devourers would be devoured. The exilers would be exiled. The plunderers would be plundered. The spoilers would be spoiled. God being God, God being God, would use the wicked hearts of invading Babylon to accomplish his judgment against Israel. And then God would execute judgment on Babylon for her wickedness. But again, don't miss the logical sequence from verses 14 and 15 into verse 16. Israel's sin was horrendous and her guilt very great. Therefore, God would ensure that Israel's attackers would get their due. What kind of logic is this? It is divine logic. It sounds nothing like our human logic, and no explanation for it is given to us here in the text. God will just act in sheer, undeserved grace toward Israel. That's it. There's nothing further to discuss. And this part of the text, we should read this and think, this is a remarkable turn of events. Is it not? And the grace just continues, and it gets even louder in the verses that follow. Verse 17, listen to God. For I will restore health to you, you people who scorn me, 
who are having this attack happen because of your flagrant sin and your great guilt, I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Notice this. In verses 12 through 15, we had heard about Israel's incurable wound, hadn't we? And now in verse 17, what had been incurable would be cured. In the words of J.A. Thompson, God here takes a new direction without warning. (laughs) Behold your God, I hope you know this about him, he is full of logic-defying surprises. Do you know that about your God? He's full of logic-defying surprises. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Verses 18 and 19, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. Yes, destroyed, devastated Jerusalem would be rebuilt after the exile was done. And the palace shall stand where it used to be. And then notice the sweet recreation of a devastated people that God would perform. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. And and here, friends, speaking of songs of thanksgiving, after a time of devastation, we think of the first three verses of Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. God continues in verse 19. Listen to this. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. Yes! The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been a promise of multiplied offspring, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, following the exile, that promise would re-engage. For the people of Israel, God's mission to God's world had not been lost in the exile. He was still going to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. He would multiply them, and they would not be few. God continues his gospel message in verses 19 and 20. I will make them honored. These are the people who scorned him. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and not of grace. This text, among thousands of others, is full of grace. And then finally, we come to verse 21 which is actually as far as we'll go this morning. Verse 21 is absolutely majestic. I hope you see that. It's one of the richest Advent verses that there is. 
God promises the exiles in verse 21, their prince, listen to the language, their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me? Declares the Lord. The prince and the ruler who is prophesied here in verse 21 is the same person who was prophesied back at verse 9. This prince and the ruler is the new David whom God would raise up. Notice here in verse 21 that this prince would be what we call an in-house prince. An in-house prince. That is, God would raise him up from inside the people of Israel. He would be from within Israel's midst. The prince would be Jewish. He would not be of foreign descent. And of course, this was in keeping with the earliest instructions that God had given concerning kings in Israel. Way back in Deuteronomy 17.15, Israel was told that kings in their land must be of God's choosing, first of all, and the king must also be one of their brothers not a foreigner to Israel. And the prince of Jeremiah 30.21 fits that description. The other thing to mention in the first half of this verse concerns the word translated into English as prince. It's very interesting. The basic meaning of the Hebrew that is behind that English translation is magnificent, excellent, splendid. In Isaiah 10.34, the same Hebrew word is translated majestic one. And there, it's describing God. In Isaiah 33.21, the word is translated majesty, and it appears in the phrase, the Lord in majesty. There is a strong argument to be made that the word as it appears in our verse in Jeremiah 30.21 is pointing to divine majesty. This prince whom Yahweh will send will be a divinely majestic and splendid prince. The last half of verse 21 reads, I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. This part of the verse is concerned, in general terms, it's concerned with the idea of proximity to God. Drawing close to God's holy presence. In the Old Testament, It was only those who were consecrated especially for that task who could dare to come near to God. Remember that it was only the high priest of Israel who was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple where God's holy presence dwelt. And the high priest was only to enter that space once per year. Listen. The unauthorized entrance into God's holy presence of a human sinner 
meant death for that person. And that fact is clearly echoed in our Jeremiah text when God asks the question here, for who would dare of himself to approach me? Answer, nobody, unless you wanted to die. Now, this is actually a very fascinating phrase in the original Hebrew. Quite literally, it reads like this. For who would mortgage his heart to draw near to me? Another way to render it would be like this. For who would pawn off his own heart to draw near to me? The idea, friends, is this. If you approached God's holy presence in an unauthorized fashion, you were gambling away your very life. And who would gamble his life away trying to gain an audience with God? I think the broader point here is, as Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham have it in their excellent book, Kingdom Through Covenant, the point here is this. Look, no, listen, no, no purely human initiative is ever going to succeed in getting a person close to the holy God. God must take initiative for us if we would get close to him. The path into God's holy presence must be given by God and by God alone. And here in verse 21, there is a path. This prince... This majestic one, this divine yet human person that comes from David's lineage, he would arise from within the ranks of Israel, and God would draw this God-man near to himself. This prince and this Davidic king would approach God, which means he would also be a high priest, along with being king. Only a high priest would have this kind of unlimited access into God's holy presence. And in Psalm 110, this same figure, this same Messiah, Jesus, God's Christ, is called a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Where Old Testament era high priests had to offer sacrifices to atone for their own personal sins. And where those priests had to repeatedly offer animal sacrifices, sacrifices which only made people outwardly clean. Jesus, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and in the royal lineage of David, is sinless. He is pure. There is no deceit found in his mouth. There is no sin tainting him. In Hebrews 7.26, it teaches us that this high priest Jesus is, in the words of that verse, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So that Jesus needs to offer no sacrifices to atone for his own sin. He is a better high priest, amen? 
He is a high priest that comes in the order of Melchizedek. He comes offering a single sacrifice to atone for the sin of others. And what Jesus offers is not, not any animal sacrifice, but himself. This high priest sacrifices himself. His own body nailed on the cross as a once-for-all atoning sacrifice that has no need ever to be repeated. We said in our text this morning in Jeremiah 30.11 that God expressed both mercy and judgment on his wayward people there. Well, the cross is God's fullest expression of both mercy and judgment. Judgment on our sin that Jesus takes as he dies, and simultaneously and mind-bogglingly, in mercy for us, Jesus substitutes himself and takes the divine punishment that we deserve. Jesus is the new Adam. Adam had been commissioned in the garden as a priest over creation. But Adam failed. Jesus is the better Adam. He's the high priest over creation who succeeds. Jesus is the new David promised in Jeremiah 30 verse 9, where the first David had worked to free God's people from the Philistine menace. The new and greater David comes... By his shed blood, he releases believing Jews and Gentiles from the far greater menaces of sin, the devil, and death. This morning, friends, we celebrate our priest king, Jesus. Not all the blood of beasts on ancient altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, bears all our sin away a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. I close now with more good news. True truth from Hebrews 10. This morning we've been reflecting on the surprising grace of God that promised consolation to the exiles and then brought our great high priest and king, Jesus Christ, in real time. His priestly work involved drawing intimately near to the Father in purity and in obedience, offering himself as the sacrifice for sin. And because of the work of Jesus, friends, the glorious truth is that we if we are united by faith to him, we have access to the presence of the holy and living and all-powerful God. Here then is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22 to close our time. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us 
draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies, as we did in the tank, our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. All glory to King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you. We thank you. You are great. You are good. You are full of consolation and mercy for us. We praise you because you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have been faithful when we were faithless. You have gone and sent Jesus to die, not for his friends, but for his enemies in mind-boggling grace. And we are so thankful and we praise you for it. All glory be to your name. Amen. And now may the mighty one who has done great things and whose mercy goes on from generation to generation guide you with his counsel, protect you beneath his wings. May God be with you until we meet again. Amen. Amen.